welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Well, welcome to today's podcast. My name is Linda Bragan. I'm a senior attorney with the Environmental Law Institute and also a lecturer in law at Vanderbilt University Law School. We are delighted to have with us today Professor Albert Lin, the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California Davis Law School. Along with us today is my colleague, ELI Research Associate Anna Beeman. And we are both very much looking forward to talking with Professor Lin about his fascinating and really timely article entitled Herding Cats, Governing Redistributed Innovation. And this article was originally published in the University of North Carolina Law Review. Uh, if you are like me, you've probably heard about new technologies such as 3D printing and DIY bio, but you don't really understand the potential environmental impacts and how we can address them. This podcast is your chance to learn from a leading law professor on this cutting edge topic. Um, before we turn to the article, I want to mention that Professor Lin's article was selected this year for inclusion in the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review or LPAR, as we call it. LPAR is a special issue of ELI's Environmental Law Reporter News and Analysis, um, which is published each August. And in this August special issue of ELR, we republish shortened versions of some of the best law review articles on environmental topics each year. And these articles all have a specific law or policy proposal in addition to forwarding legal theory. The articles are selected as part of a class that I co-teach at Vanderbilt Law School with Professor Mike Vandenberg. Uh, it's very competitive to be accepted into the LPAR class, and once a student is accepted, they have the privilege then of looking at all the hundreds of environmental law articles that are written every year. Uh, and the objective is to find articles that have creative and feasible proposals that would be of interest to policymakers and practitioners who don't have the time to read law review articles. Um, in addition to republishing the shortened articles, in some cases we solicit comments from policymakers and practitioners and hold a conference to discuss them in Washington, D.C. So all of these details about the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review and the articles we picked this year and in past years are on the ELI and Vanderbilt Law School LPAR webpages. So we hope you'll look for them. Um, this year, the students reviewed hundreds of articles and we discussed 130 of them in class and we picked just a very small handful um, for recognition. So it's really not easy to be selected for LPAR. And Professor Lynn, I've been a fan of your work for a long time now. So congratulations on the recognition this year. And, and we now want to start off by um, handing it over to Anna B to ask some questions. Anna? Great. Thanks so much, Linda. Um, so, Professor Lin, the central topic of your paper is this term called distributed innovation. And I think for listeners that are not familiar with this concept, it would be useful for us to discuss the three major forms of distributed innovation you identify and think about the role in the future. So, in your paper, you first introduce something called DIY bio. Do you mind first explaining what constitutes as DIY bio and give some examples of how it is being used now? Well, thank you for having me here today. Let me uh, just first a note about this term distributed innovation, um, because it may not be completely obvious to listeners what that refers to. But here I'm talking about technologies and innovation in which a wide range of users can participate in the innovation technology development. 
process. So it's not just scientists who we typically think about doing the innovation, but more broadly, uh, it can be uh, lay members of the public who might be involved. Now, specifically with respect to do-it-yourself biology, this is referring to biotechnology research conducted both by scientists and non-scientists outside of traditional academic and industrial institutions. So this might take place uh, within one's home or uh, perhaps more commonly within uh, community labs. These are dedicated labs, um, but uh, open to members of the public to participate. And uh, these activities within the DIY bio community uh, are occurring uh, in large part uh, or enabled by the shrinking of economic, institutional, and educational barriers to entry. That is, you know, in the past, uh, this sort of biotechnology research required significant resources, uh, both financial as well as just the, the infrastructure, uh, and so it was limited to uh, either academic or uh, industrial institutions. Uh, but now, uh, laypersons uh, can get involved in these DIY uh, biology projects. Um, in terms of uh, how this has happened, um, we've had uh, advances in some of the technologies and techniques, uh, particularly uh, under the rubric of synthetic biology. Listeners may be uh, aware of uh, CRISPR, which has gotten some play in the media, a gene editing technique. Um, I think gene editing is a little bit of a misnomer in terms of the uh, precision it suggests. Uh, but nevertheless, um, these technologies have made it, in a sense, a lot easier uh, for uh, non-experts to engage in uh, uh, biotechnology experimentation. Um, and the costs uh, have come down as well. Um, you can order kind of customized DNA sequences uh, online and put these things together. Uh, and in terms of examples how this is being used, a lot of the activity in the uh, DOMY bio community involves kind of basic uh, experiments, um, but uh, there are some folks who are engaged in uh, trying to come up with new products. Uh, one of the most prominent examples is uh, Glowing Plant, which raised nearly half a million dollars through Kickstarter crowdfunding uh, to try to produce a plant that would glow in the dark. Um, and the idea was to take a gene from a bioluminescent ocean bacteria and insert it into a plant. Um, ultimately, this project was abandoned. They were unable to uh, produce the plant as was envisioned. Um, but uh, you see the potential for uh, these sorts of uh, projects. Another incident, um, more recently involved a biohacker, self-described biohacker, one of these um, folks engaged in do-it-yourself biology who injected himself with modified DNA uh, in an effort to make himself more muscular. Apparently, uh, that didn't work so much either. So how might um, DIY bio be used in the future then? Well, some of the potential applications that are Envision include new disease treatments, uh, the creation of new organisms even. Um, one of the fears involves uh, the construction of deadly pathogens. Um, we might be able to construct harmful viruses or microorganisms, either existing ones or perhaps creating new ones. And so the concern is that bioterrorists 
uh, might uh, be able to use this technology as well. Although at this point, um, would-be terrorists probably have easier ways of wreaking havoc uh, than uh, successfully creating uh, pathogens through do-it-yourself biology. You know, Professor Lin, I, I have to say I, I'm, I'm relieved to hear that because uh, I've been watching the newest um, season of Designated Survivor, which has an entire storyline about biohackers and um, and disease. So <laughs> I've been I've been wondering about this. Well, at least at this point, uh, it, it's there are much easier ways to wreak havoc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess that's comforting. Uh, sorry, sorry, Anna, go ahead. That's all right. So. Um, how would this form of distributed innovation be impactful then from an environmental and health perspective? Um, what are the benefits and risks that are associated? Well, obviously, if you have the bioterrorism applications, there are various risks. But if we just think of, think back to the glowing plant example, um, the plant that they were using as the host uh, organism um, is related to weeds that grow in the wild. And so the concern is that there might be gene exchange uh, or there might be escape. Um, the crowdfunding campaign basically promised uh, financial supporters that they would uh, be provided with seeds or plants uh, if the project had been successful. Um, and one could imagine uh, the release of these organisms in the environment might have unanticipated uh, effects and ultimately disrupt uh, ecosystems. Right. Well, now I want like to move on to the second form of distributed innovation you introduced in your paper, which is 3D printing. And for those who are unfamiliar, what is 3D printing and how is it currently being used? So 3D printing involves the manufacture of three-dimensional objects by building up or binding multiple thin layers of various materials. They might involve plastics, metals, uh, or even food. Uh, and the ability to produce complex items in one piece can offer advantages in terms of structural integrity, weight, and waste reduction. So we can contrast 3D printing kind of a bottom-up way of uh, producing objects uh, with kind of top-down manufacturing where you take a raw material and then uh, whittle it down to the object you're ultimately trying to produce. Uh, in terms of current uses, um, well, 3D printing has actually been around for several decades, um, so it's not in itself a new technology, but it's become much cheaper, much more accessible to laypersons and small businesses and hobbyists uh, because of the advances in computing power, software, uh, and materials, and so it's just simply a more accessible process than it was uh, in the past. And so ordinary people can create com complex uh, objects uh, some listeners may have done so through 3D printers they may own in their own home, uh, or many libraries now have uh, 3D printers available uh, for uh, reservation so you can print your uh, desired object. So the sorts of uh, things that might be printed uh, include basically almost anything, it sounds like. Uh, plastic guns received a lot of attention um, because they could be printed through uh, 3D printing, and they might be used and, and might be able to evade uh, metal detectors. Um, can produce custom objects, whether you need a replacement part for something uh, or you just want to uh, make a toy. Um, you can produce uh, body parts or even living tissues. Uh, 
through uh, various uh, 3D printing processes. Very cool. So how might this technology be used in the future then? Well, some of the things that uh, folks are talking about include uh, home construction. Um, so again, you can build a home with less waste and, and perhaps uh, even lower cost than uh, conventional home construction methods. You might be able to make customized meals, which have the exact uh, nutrients that uh, the consumer might need. Uh, I've seen uh, discussions of 3D printed meat using plant-based proteins. Uh, so kind of impossible burger 2.0 or something. Uh, medical applications such as printing an artificial heart, consumer products, perhaps innumerable possibilities. We can imagine custom shoes, custom clothes uh, being printed uh, through 3D print. So you kind of alluded to this, um, the future uses given um, 3D 3D printed meat, but how would it be impactful from an environmental and health perspective? What are the potential benefits and risks? Right. So specifically with respect to 3D printed meats, one of the advantages if it's printed from plant-based proteins is we don't have the adverse impacts associated with animal-based agriculture, whether it's greenhouse gases or uh, contaminated water. Um, But more generally with respect to 3D printing, uh, one of the promises is that with this bottom-up approach to manufacturing, at least potentially, there's uh, less waste in the production process. Uh, in addition, if people are able to print the objects they need kind of close to home, either in, with their own 3D printer or perhaps uh, at the public library, they don't need to order uh, an object from far away, and so you have reduced uh, transportation uh, impacts of obtaining the desired uh, good. On the other hand, um, if you have low-cost 3D printing, it could be easy, perhaps too easy in a sense, to uh, print more stuff. Uh, And obviously, it depends in large part on what the printed object is being uh, used for. Uh, And there's various potential uh, risks uh, associated with uh, 3D printing process. Uh, there may be health or environmental effects depending on uh, what substances are used in 3D printing. Uh, there may be respiratory uh, exposures. Uh, normal manufacturing processes, at least in theory, you have uh, uh, occupational safety and health administration regulations, um, but people are doing this stuff in their own homes. Um, those safeguards may not apply. In terms of the products that are printed, um, you have concerns that, well, individual products, but you know, not unique to 3D printing, but kind of low-scale, small-scale produced individual products may not be subject to the same oversight as kind of mass-produced uh, products. Uh, there's also the potential for uh, counterfeiting of parts uh, or printing of biological weapons or chemical weapons, sort of analogous to uh, the printing of plastic guns. Um, So you have those sorts of concerns, uh, and then you have uh, potential undermining of intellectual property protections. People can print copies of things that are uh, otherwise uh, protected by intellectual property law. Let's see. Well, lastly, um, the sharing economy is already understood by many in 
forms such as ride sharing or short-term rentals, but I want to know more about the potential environmental impacts of the sharing economy and what we need to be concerned about in the future. Right. So this is the one example uh, which is probably the most familiar to our listeners. Um, and obviously the activities within the sharing economy are not new. People have engaged in lodging and transportation and so forth forever. Um, but the scale is new. That is, um, we have kind of small scale activities, the individuals renting out their room or uh, transporting uh, others around. Uh, but there's the potential for cumulative impacts because of the scale. And so we're just beginning to understand some of the environmental impacts. There was a recent uh, report that came out regarding uh, traffic congestion in San Francisco, uh, which has risen about 62% over the last six years. Uh, and it's estimated that Uber and Lyft are responsible for two thirds of that increase. Wow. Um, and so a tremendous impact, uh, a bit belied by the title or of ride sharing, um, if the sharing economy were truly involving sharing, um, perhaps the impacts would not be so significant. Um, and then other examples, we have neighborhood effects. Uh, if you think about Airbnb, um, many jurisdictions have been trying to figure out, well, how do we respond to this because it's affecting uh, the quality of life for residents uh, and affecting the the, the um, composition of the neighborhood itself. Uh, and so trying to figure out, well, what do we do about short-term rentals that are enabled uh, through uh, the sharing economy platforms? Uh, in addition, um, you know, what the sharing economy basically is, is, is driving the sharing economy is that, well, we have much greater efficiencies, lower prices, uh, the ability for people to um, engage in transactions that weren't uh, possible before uh, through the technologies that we have now, um, which could lead to increased levels of consumption and potentially associated environmental impacts uh, with that consumption. And so that's uh, a further uh, environmental uh, concern associated with the sharing economy. Wow, yeah, definitely. Well, that's all really interesting. And clearly, these are all important forms of innovation that the public, regulatory officials, and environmental advocates need to be familiar with. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Linda now for her to ask some questions regarding your proposal to regulate these forms of distributed innovation. Thanks, Anna. And yes, thanks, Professor Linda. That background was, uh, I think, really helpful, particularly on the distributed innovation technologies. I mean, it's really rather incredible. I mean, I, I find it a little hard to process, and it's all moving very rapidly, which uh, has us now turning to this question of how how do you govern these technologies? Um, in your article, you discuss how regulating distributed innovation generally is just no, no easy task, and uh, that distributed innovation technologies pose some real serious challenges for regulators. Can you tell us about what some of these key challenges are? Right. So first, it's difficult to apply the law given what I describe as law's categorical nature. That is, law relies on the process of categorization to determine what and how behavior is governed. Um, but distributed innovation activities often do not fit neatly within existing legal care categories. And uh, we're familiar with this with 
the controversies of, well, how do we treat Uber or how do we treat Airbnb rentals where jurisdictions are wrestling with this question? Are they, are Uber drivers like taxi drivers, in which case maybe we ought to regulate them like taxis or are they just ordinary uh, private individuals, in which case maybe they don't need regulation. And so we've had to, you know, we've seen uh, states and, and local localities try to come up with some sort of hybrid regulation perhaps uh, to uh, wrestle with the impacts uh, of these activities. And uh, similarly, with respect to Airbnb, or do we treat them like hotel operators uh, or do we treat them as just individuals, you know, letting someone stay uh, once in a while uh, overnight? And so um, that's one of the difficulties is that law isn't really uh, well-equipped to define, to, to address these uh, sorts of activities. Um, it's often regulatory regimes are built around certain assumptions of you know, how economic transactions are carried out on a particular scale. Uh, and so oftentimes the distributed and innovation activities kind of fall under uh, the radar screen. A second difficulty is the logistical, political, and cultural barriers involved in uh, first trying to get a handle on these activities and their effects, uh, and then uh, trying to govern them. So merely identifying the participate, participants involved in these activities can pose a challenge because there's so many of them, as well as their participation is often sporadic and of low magnitude. Even once you identify the participants, it can be very costly and resource intensive to apply a conventional regulatory approach, given that you have so many participants uh, and many of these participants aren't accustomed to dealing with regulation. They don't have uh, lawyers or, or, or legal team to uh, uh, deal with conventional uh, regulatory approaches. And uh, politically, individuals often may resist uh, the imposition of uh, regulatory burdens. And then there may be cultural resistance as well. So if we look at the DIY bio community, in which some of the participants call themselves biohackers, um, they see themselves as uh, kind of rebels doing something innovative uh, uh, and often um, may not be particularly uh, interested in uh, being subject to oversight. And then a final difficulty is that it's often hard to identify the exact harms, particularly with these kind of low-level activities where, uh, at least initially, uh, they, uh, the impact uh, may be hard to identify. And so it's only later now in San Francisco we're identifying the traffic impacts uh, resulting from uh, the, the ride-sharing uh, applications. Um, but some of these activities, even though they may seem low level, uh, can have a significant impact. That is, if you think about DIY bio in particular, um, the escape of an engineered microorganism could wreak havoc. Uh, so it's not just, well, we're missing kind of a, a low level of activity that, yes, it'd be nice to get a hold of, or at least be able to address the concerns associated with it, um, there might be uh, quite substantial impacts from the failure to uh, uh, oversee these risks.
Yeah, I mean, there really are some very serious challenges here. And, you know, one of the things that you do in your article is to pretty methodically go through uh, the different ways that we have tried to regulate individual behavior and small scale activities, you know, as possible models for addressing potential harms from distributed innovation. I mean, you talk about um, direct regulation, economic incentives, norm activation. But again, for, you know, some of the reasons you've just outlined, you conclude that distributed innovation just has several characteristics that make governance particularly complicated. And you've talked about some of those, but are there any others you want to highlight before we move on to ultimately the approach that you recommend? Right. So as I've alluded to, direct regulation is difficult, it's expensive, it's intrusive, it's politically difficult. We do use economic incentives to incentivize or discourage certain uh, behaviors, but there's characteristics of distributed innovation that make its governance especially complex. I mean, first of all, it's innovation, it's change. And so uh, any legal system struggles to kind of keep up with uh, these sorts of changes that are rapid. Um, and there's novelty that is with some of these distributed innovation activities, we have activities which are new, which haven't been subject to regulation that don't fit in existing legal boxes. Uh, and so uh, assuming that we can rely on a conventional regulatory approach to deal with the risks and uncertainties uh, is uh, simplistic. Ultimately, you outline a typology or some basic approaches that could assist in the oversight of distributed innovation. Uh, can you just give us sort of a little overview of those approaches and, and why it's necessary, as you state in your article, to quote, reconceptualize oversight and, and identify alternative agents of governance for distributed innovation? So I use the term governance uh, as opposed to regulation because I want this broader term uh, to have us thinking about um, means other than government um, to provide some sort of uh, oversight. And so here I'm referring to the making and implementation of norms by a range of actors, uh, including but not limited to government. The three basic approaches I identify in the article are, number one, what I call big data, big government. Uh, number two, reliance on non-governmental intermediaries. And number three, self-regulation. With respect to big data, big government, what I mean here is that look, we have a current state in which we're producing huge quantities of data. And we have a growing capacity to process that data. And one possible approach would be to say, well, we can have big government, which takes advantage of all this data uh, and tries to regulate at a perhaps micro level that wasn't previously possible. Now, there's various concerns with such an approach regarding transparency, regarding privacy, um, but that's certainly one possible way to deal with the concerns raised by distributed innovation. The second possible approach is to rely on non-governmental intermediaries. Uh, and here, we normally think about non-governmental intermediaries in terms of, let's say, third-party certifiers running environmental certification systems, or banks 
applying lending standards or insurers requiring uh, certain sort of conditions to be met, uh, large retailers and manufacturers uh, engaging in supply chain contracts with certain environmental or labor standards. Um, so these intermediaries often have information, skills, or resources that the government lacks, uh, and they can often act more quickly uh, or act uh, more quickly than the government or when the government lacks uh, jurisdiction or is gridlocked or lacks the, otherwise lacks the ability uh, to act, uh, they can often uh, take some action. But these are all private entities, um, so they may not be subject to the same transparency or accountability requirements that uh, public actors may be subject to. The third basic approach, uh, self-regulation, uh, recognizes that individual actors or industries sometimes have uh, the best information regarding what the risks might be, as well as potential risk reduction strategies. Uh, and the uh, allure of self-regulation is particularly great where you have rapidly changing environments, where the government is may not be uh, able or uh, able to respond to a problem or may not recognize a problem, and industry can better anticipate developments and adjust their own standards. And here I'm using industry broadly to refer to um, kind of individuals who are engaging in um, in the distributed innovation activities. Um, but again, we have concerns regarding, well, self-regulation may involve self-interested behavior, and in addition, the lack of transparency and accountability with non-governmental intermediaries is present here as well. Now, these three approaches aren't mutually exclusive. You can certainly deploy a combination of them, and we may need to, uh, depending on the context. Uh, well, thank you. Thanks for outlining sort of your the basic approaches that you think you know could could work um, for distributed innovation. I think it might be interesting to to actually talk about how those would apply to the specific types of distributed innovation that you talk about in your uh, in your paper. Could we start with DYI Bio? Um, what is the current approach? Is there a current approach to to governance with respect to DYI Bio? Well, it seems like the current approach relies primarily on this third option that I've just outlined, uh, that of self-regulation. So, as we noted earlier, uh, community labs are where much of this DIY bioactivity is taking place. And these community labs regulate access uh, to equipment and materials. Um, lab directors uh, evaluate uh, new members who might want to participate. Uh, they exercise, or at least have the potential to exercise oversight over projects, as well as what materials are introduced. Uh, so there's certainly some self-regulation going on. The do-it-yourself bio community has developed a draft code of ethics, which uh, contains somewhat vague principles. Uh, and then interestingly, the FBI has engaged in an outreach program uh, to the DIY bio community in an effort uh, to build public trust to say, well, we've got an eye on these uh, activities uh, and at the same time, gaining access to the expertise and assistance of the DIY uh, bio community in policing potential threats or misuse. Does it work? Well, 
it's a little hard to say. Yeah, uh, which is a little people, scary. Yeah. Yeah. Can you trust these uh, folks? Uh, especially when this culture uh, in uh, with the biohackers is generally opposed to oversight and control. But at least, right, hopefully we have um, some sense of what's going on. Uh, now, whether the community lab operators or the FBI is adequately thinking about environmental and ecological concerns is less than clear. Um, but that's essentially what we have uh, at the moment. And what about some of the other approaches that you outline? Is there a role for non-government uh, intermediaries here or what you call the big data, big government approach? Certainly there's the possibility of that. Um, one can imagine a registration requirement sort of akin to what we've seen with respect to drones where you have drones of a certain size or capacity uh, they have to be registered with the FAA or they're supposed to be registered. And so there's a little bit of a big data, big government approach that could be applied with respect to DIY bio, where we might say, okay, well, if you're going to engage in this activity, you need to at least register. Um, and that registration requirement um, could be enforced uh, either through DNA synthesis companies. So when you order your DNA strands, um, you would have to show that you're registered or through the community labs. So they might require a registration in order to participate. And so the non-governmental intermediaries could be part of uh, this approach. Well, that, that, that all makes sense. And, and uh, it, it sounds like it's very much, a, governance is very much a work in progress when it comes to DYI bio. Um, let, let's talk about 3D printing, which is another technology that you discuss in your paper. Um, what, how would these governance approaches work in the context of 3D printing? So one possibility is the big data, big government approach. 3D printing relies on digital files. Uh, in theory, uh, one could track these files, perhaps when they're uploaded or downloaded. There might be constitutional objections to this. You would have to have pretty extensive surveillance, uh, and such an approach might drive activity underground. Uh, but that's one possible way of trying to address it, address the risks. You can rely on the non-governmental intermediaries, the websites that host and distribute information. So Thingiverse, one of the um, websites that uh, hosts um, the digital files, uh, has an acceptable use policy. Uh, you can't violate intellectual property rights. You're not supposed to promote illegal activities, et cetera. And so um, you can imagine them playing a significant role in governance mm -hmm. or 3D printer manufacturers. Uh, mm -hmm. might be required to embed, embed a traceable identifier within printed objects so that at least when you find an object that, let's say, we decided the society shouldn't be manufactured, you could at least trace it back to the printer and potentially the person who printed it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the self-regulation approach, well, you can imagine perhaps a voluntary guidelines trying to develop uh, uh, ethics regarding how 3D printing should be done. It's a little bit hard to imagine that this would be terribly effective. 
especially since a lot of 3D printing occurs kind of on an individual basis. So in contrast to DIY bio, where you have a, a, lot of, a lot of the activity occurring within the community lab, so you have at least some potential social norms being applied, uh, a little harder to see that with respect to the 3D printing. Interesting. Well, let, let's close on, on this topic uh, by talking about the sharing economy, which is obviously a very different animal than these technologies. Um, you conclude that the big data, um, big government approach is probably the best fit here for, for governing the sharing economy. Tell us why that is and how that would work. Okay, so the sharing economies leave a digital trail. If you think about popular platforms, Uber or Airbnb, right? there's all sorts of information that's collected and exchanged uh, in order for these transactions to work. Uber collects information about your name, your email, your phone number, your address, your photo, your location, your devices, etc. And so there's a lot of information here that's available not just to Uber, but potentially uh, available to the government. And governments are already starting to try to get at this data. Uh, and so certainly the data is available. Um, and so could be used uh, as part of a big government approach. And we see a little bit of that already, uh, where the sharing economy is one area where we do see uh, some government uh, regulation going on. So I also want to ask you if there is a role for self-regulation and non-governmental intermediaries in governing the sharing economy. Yeah, so already we see some of this in the approaches that are being taken to regulating Uber and Airbnb, where it's the platforms themselves, Airbnb and Uber, that are being regulated and not the individual drivers or individual hosts. Um, and it makes sense because it's a lot easier uh, to regulate the larger entity and you know, certainly logistically and uh, in terms of efficiencies. Um, but beyond that, um, we see these intermediaries engaging in a form of governance as well. That is, even when governments aren't telling them you must you know, pre-screen drivers, for example. Right. Um, Uber in response to certain incidents uh, saying, well, there's certain guidelines that have to be followed or we're going to do additional security measures. Uh, we're going to uh, encourage people to uh, take certain precautions uh, mm -hmm. when your driver shows up. Right. And so that's a form of uh, uh, self-governance, you might say, uh, and then, of course, we have uh, online reputation systems, which are essentially right. self-regulation. Right, which are very powerful. Um, well, this has really been a fascinating uh, discussion. And I, I'm going to hand it back over to Anna for uh, a, a last question, a looking forward question. Anna? Sure. So as our final wrap-up question, as Linda says, um, if you could propose steps that could be taken in the next year, to help make sure that the development of distributed innovation technologies do not outpace methods of governance, what would those be? Right. So first, I think we need to have greater study and more attention paid to distributed innovation as a governance challenge. 
That is, what are the risks that we are failing to think about, failing to pay attention to? I mean, we used to have an Office of Technology Assessment. It was basically disbanded in the 1990s. Um, but we need some sort of approach, mechanisms for thinking about uh, these sorts of uh, concerns and risks uh, posed by distributed innovation. In addition, I think we need to focus on the various options that we have, and not just think about uh, government regulation, uh, but these three approaches and thinking about a combination of these approaches, if necessary, and in particular, focusing on the power of intermediaries. And in a broader sense, society is already kind of recognizing the power of these intermediaries, not necessarily with respect to these sharing platforms, although I think there's some of that, but calls to regulate non-government entities such as Facebook or Google or Amazon and just seeing how much power they exercise. And oversight of some of these intermediaries in the distributed innovation context, whether it's community labs or Uber, reflects an understanding, a growing understanding of the power of intermediaries. So uh, I'm not necessarily calling for direct regulation. Um, perhaps we can rely in some instances on uh, public pressure on intermediaries to do the right thing, uh, but recognizing the power that these intermediaries have and how that power could be uh, applied uh, in a way that benefits the public uh, is uh, equally important. Well, thank you, Anna, and, and thank you, Professor Lin. Um, this is you've given us a lot to uh, to think about. It's really thought provoking and and really quite daunting, actually. Um, I actually really hope that you'll share this podcast uh, and the LPAR issue with policymakers because that's exactly what we're hoping to achieve. And you've done some really, I think, important um, foundational thinking about how we can govern these rapidly emerging um, technologies and, and distributed um, innovation like the sharing economy. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, listeners, I encourage you to look for the August issue of ELI's Environmental Law Reporter, which has a summary of Professor Lin's article as well as the other articles we selected this year. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Linda. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.